Tonight we're going to start a study in the, the book of Psalms that will last anywhere from 15 to 150 weeks. Um, actually, probably more than 150 because it would be a really long sermon to go through Psalm 119 at one time. But the book of Psalms is a, a great study because it covers such a wide range of topics. Right? The Psalms are filled with wisdom, uh, worship, rejoicing. There's messianic prophecy. There's peace. There's judgment. There's praise, guidance, lament, uh, and so much more. I think the book of Psalms is also probably the most human book of the Bible because most of the Psalms are prayers or poems or songs written by the people of God at various times of their life, and they're written to God. So what we see in the Psalms are often a wide range of emotions. The authors express loneliness. They express disappointment in God. Why is He not helping them in their time of need? They express love for the Lord. They are in awe of God. They, they pledge themselves to the Lord. There's sorrow for sin. There's regret and brokenness, discouragement, despair, anger, shame, delight, fear, zeal, pain, and more. I mean, on and on it goes. It is just a, there, there's nothing to help us realize the people of the Bible live in the same world as we do as the book of Psalms. And the Psalms, they're also filled with some hard sayings. For instance, David once prayed for God to break out the teeth of his enemies. Right now, who among us hasn't read that and thought, hey, if that's a legitimate way to pray, God, i got a name or two for you. Right? So during our study of Psalms, we'll look at those kind of Psalms and we'll see what they mean for us today. And we're going to start at the beginning in Psalm 1. Uh, so if you have your Bible, open it up to Psalm 1, page 415, it should be. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Psalm 1, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water that bringeth forth fruit in his season. His leaf shall also not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We come tonight with a desire to learn from your word, a desire to hear from you. So let your Holy Spirit come and open our ears to hear what you have for us. Let your Holy Spirit come and take the word, make it living and active in our life to challenge us where we need to be challenged to convict us, where we need to be convicted to strengthen us, where we need to be strengthened to encourage us, where we need to be encouraged. Help us to have ears to hear and hearts would obey. Let our hearts be good ground where the word would sink deep into our hearts and bring forth fruit for your glory. We love you, Lord, and we need you in this time. Have your way in all things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, the title of the lesson, the message tonight, is A Call to God's Path. And I called it A Call to God's Path because... That's really kind of what we see here, right? There are a series of either-or choices laid out in this psalm, right? So in verse 1, we are either, throughout the psalm, we are either blessed, and, and we see at the end that the blessed person is also the righteous person in verse 6, or we are ungodly. 
Uh, then in verses 1 through 3, it lists all the things that are true about this blessed or this righteous person. And then when it gets to the ungodly, it simply says they are not so. So what this tells us is all that is true for the blessed or the righteous is not true for the ungodly. And it's meant to picture an exact opposite. Whatever good things are true for the godly and the righteous or the blessed and the righteous person is not true for the ungodly or the unrighteous person. Where the, the righteous will stand and bear fruit, this is not true for the ungodly who is blown like chaff away in the wind. The, the blessed or the righteous will stand in the congregation of the righteous, but the ungodly will not. Ultimately, the picture is the blessed or the righteous person will be saved on the day of judgment and the ungodly will be destroyed in the day of judgment. So either we are blessed, we are righteous, headed for salvation, or we are ungodly and we are headed for judgment. It is one or the other. And there is an either or about the choice or the path we're on. Either we're on one path or we're on the other. Each path is different in the way they live, and in the ultimate destination of this path. Either I am on path A, the path of the righteous headed to salvation. Or I'm on path B, headed to judgment where I will not stand. It is one or the other. It's not both and there is no third choice. So this is true of, of all of us in here and of everyone everywhere. Destination A, the, the congregation of the righteous, or ultimate salvation, or heaven. Destination B, not standing in the congregation of the righteous, or facing judgment, or hell. Now everyone wants to go destination A, the path of the righteous that leads to salvation. But the reality is not everyone does. But that, that's part of the idea here. There are some people who are not righteous and they are not on the path of the righteous. They are not on God's path and so they are headed for judgment and destruction. But Jesus, he talks about something very similar to this and he says something that's even harder than the idea that there are some that are going to miss the path of the righteous. Jesus has entered the straight gate, for wide is the gate, broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go thereat. Because straight is the gate, narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few will find it. According to Jesus, very few actually end up at destination A, the path of the righteous. And this is a truly a, a troubling thought. Because while a huge portion of our culture would say they believed hell is real, very few believe they are going there. Most people believe they are saved. Most people believe they are going to heaven. And everything will be alright with them. And really, only really bad people end up going to hell. And this is true of people who really reject the idea of Christianity at all. They, they reject the claims of Scripture. But it's also true of people who are 
maybe backslidden or who have become carnal Christians or, or people who are cultural Christians who have made a profession of faith but it's never made an impact on their life, they would say, we're going to heaven. But does the path of their life demonstrate that's the reality? Does the path of their life demonstrate the truth of what they're professing with their mouth? Proverbs would tell us that there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof is destruction. So just because I think I'm on one path, doesn't mean I'm actually on that path. Have you ever gone somewhere and you took wrong you took a wrong turn? Not a wrong turn where you immediately thought it was recognized it was wrong, but a wrong turn where you didn't recognize it for a significant period of time. Several years ago, we we and Kevin and Diane and Jacob and Kayla, when the kids were little, we all went to, to San Antonio. And in the process, we were supposed to kind of veer left with the road turn, but we went straight because it looked like the road went straight. And we drove several miles Happy as larks, thinking we were on the path to San Antonio. And we were not. We had to turn around and go back. So just because we think we're going the right way doesn't mean we actually are. So how can we know what path we're on? How can we know what our eternal destination will be? Well, we look at the path. And we examine our direction. What direction is the path I'm on taking? Is it truly the path of the righteous? Or is it the path of the ungodly? In this song, it gives us three checks to see what path we're on. So three checks that I put in the form of a question. Check one. Who or what is influencing me? Who or what is influencing me? Now, we all have a variety of influences in our lives. We're influenced by our spouse. We're influenced by parents. We're influenced by teachers. We're influenced by friends, co-workers, neighbors. We're influenced by the music we listen to, the shows we watch, the movies we watch, the news we watch. Uh, Very little, actually, in our lives is not trying to influence us in one way or another. And what we, part of what we have to learn is to be careful who we let influence us or what we let influence us. Look at how the psalm starts. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of the sinner, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Now why not just say, don't be ungodly. Don't be a sinner. Don't be a scorner. It's because the author of the psalm wants us to think about the character of those influencing us. And the power this influence can have on our lives. In a way what he's saying is do not be influenced by ungodly people. Because if you're influenced by ungodly people you will eventually take part in their actions and their attitudes. Now ungodly as as he means it here it simply means someone in our day we would say someone who doesn't have Jesus in their lives. It's simply someone who is not saved. So ungodly doesn't mean the serial killer. Don't be influenced by a serial killer. It's talking about do not stand in the count or walk in the counsel of those who don't know Jesus. But there is a progression we see in this verse. First, 
There is walking in the counsel of the ungodly. Then there is standing in the path of sinners. And then there is sitting in the seat of, a scorn, of the scornful. So think of it like this. If you were in the sanctuary, you walk through the sanctuary, well, you're not there very long. But if you get interested in what's going on in the sanctuary and you stand around for a little while, you may be there a little bit longer. But then if you sit down, well, you're pretty much all in at this point in your life. The picture being painted here is, is twofold of this progression. First, there's a progression of the character of the people who influence us. First, there are the ungodly, those who don't know Jesus. But people can be ungodly. People cannot know Jesus and still essentially be basically good people, right? I mean, we all know lost people who live moral lives. But if I consistently get counsel from the ungodly, then that will lead to the next one, which is the sinner. The sinner is someone who not only doesn't believe in Jesus, but someone who actively lives a sinful life. Who consistently takes part in sinful activities. And then there is the scorner. And the scorner, or the mocker, depending on what translation you have, is someone who doesn't know Jesus, someone who actively lives a sinful life, and someone who also mocks. They mock the idea of living for Jesus. Or they mock the idea of biblical morality. Or they mock the idea of church and of living a righteous life and of eternal destinies. And what we see is one leads to the next. That the ungodly will eventually become sinners who eventually become scorners. And with this, there is a progression in our participation in sinful activities. First, we are influenced by those who don't know Jesus and how we live our lives. And if we do this long enough, we will begin to take part in the activities that are sinful. We will begin to, we will walk in the counsel of the ungodly till eventually we are standing in the path of the sinner. We're taking part in their activities. And if we take part in the activities of the sinner, we walk in their paths or stand in their paths long enough, eventually we sit with the scorners and we begin to be mockers. We are influenced by their lifestyle, their attitudes and their actions until eventually we emulate them. Until eventually... We have the same morality, the same mindset, and essentially the same lifestyle. They do. One leads to the next, which leads to the next, which leads to the next. The person who walks in the counsel of the ungodly will eventually stand in the path of the sinners. And once we have given ourselves to stand in the path of the sinners, we will soon join in the scornful. Now, we would be quick to say, no, that's not true. Think about it like this. Let's say I start taking advice from ungodly people. And so then eventually I start taking part in their sin. Now you think, well, it's a big stretch from sinning, giving in simple activity, to being a scorner. But, but let's say I'm someone and I, I start cheating on my wife. And you find out. And you confront me. Well, essentially I have two choices. Don't I? I can repent. Or I can react. How many people react? Oh, come on. You, you just don't understand what my marriage is like. 
you don't understand what, what, what it's like in my heart, how it feels in my home. You, you don't get it. What, what is that that's defending my sin? What is it? What am I doing as I, ju- as I justify my sin? I'm being a scorner. I'm saying, you're holier than thou. You're judgmental. You're the problem. My sin isn't a problem. It's not even really sin. God understands. We all know people who justify their sin in that way. And they are the scorned. That's what, that's what we see in our culture so much. And that's what happens. One leads to the next, which leads to the next, which leads to the next. Once we give ourselves to the counsel of the ungodly, we take part in their activities. And once we start taking part in their activities, we cannot bear someone saying what we're doing is wrong. And so we justify it and we mock and we scorn those who would say what we're doing is wrong. So the question for all of us, who are we letting influence us? What are we letting influence us? Scripture gives us Clear warnings about who or what we let influence us. The tongue of the just is as choice silver. The heart of the wicked is of little worth. The lips of the wise disperse knowledge, but the heart of the foolish doeth not so. Now the idea, both of these verses, is really there's a right and a wrong place to go for counsel. Really, because that's where it starts. The counsel is where it go, starts. So there is a a right and a wrong place to go for advice. There is a right and a wrong type of person we should let influence the decisions of our lives. Those who should have the, the greatest influence in our lives, who should be able to speak into our lives, give us advice, give us counsel, influence the decisions we make, should be wise people and they should be godly people. And if they are not, we are setting ourselves up for failure. The reason... The reason they need to be godly people is because their advice will be rooted in Scripture. The ungodly, those who don't know Jesus, who have not trusted Him as their Lord and Savior, they will not take what God has revealed into consideration during their decision-making process. Instead of it being godly advice, it will be pragmatic advice. It will be easy advice. It will be advice based upon convenience, what makes us feel good, what will profit us the most, or, or what will make us happy. And though they may be good, moral people, our unbelieving friends, if what God has revealed about what's right and what's wrong plays no part in their decision-making process, then the advice they give will almost certainly be ungodly. I'll give you an example. When I was a help desk technician in Tahlequah, I saw a a perfect example of this. There was a guy who was about to get married. And he was looking for a way to cut costs. He and his girlfriend, his fiancée, were both looking for a way to cut costs so they could have money saved up when they got married. But they both lived in separate apartments. So as he was talking to us and asking us who were married, what were some things we did to save money, one of my friends spoke up and he said, or one of our co-workers spoke up and he said, what you need to do is figure out which apartment you're going to live in. Then you cancel the other and you move in together until the wedding. That way you save the cost of two, house, of two apartments. 
And the guy getting married, he protested. My, my wife's parents are really religious. They're Christians. They're strong, active members of a United Methodist Church. They would not stand for that. And the guy giving the advice said, I know my, my wife's parents were the same way, but what we had to tell them, what you'll have to tell them is, I get what you're saying. I appreciate your concern. But we're getting married anyway, and this will save us some money. It was pragmatic advice. It was profitable advice. It was easy advice. It was probably even what they really wanted to do anyway. But what it wasn't, it wasn't godly advice. So who are you letting influence you in your life? What are you letting them influence you to do? And who you're letting influence you and what you're letting them influence you to do is a good indicator of what path you're on and what your eventual eternal destination will be. So check one, who or what is influencing me? Check two, what is my attitude towards God's Word? Verse two, so that blessed the righteous They don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. They don't stand in the way of sinners. They don't sit at the seat of the scornful. Instead, their delight is in the law of the Lord. And in His law, that they meditate day and night. So the the righteous, those who are on God's path, they delight in God's Word. Now what we delight in brings us pleasure. It brings us satisfaction do we delight in God's word do we receive pleasure from reading or studying and obeying God's word or is it a chore we have to make ourselves do now let let me say something with this I, I think there's probably in all of our lives going to be times where it's a chore and I hate to say that, but I know it's true in my life. So I'm going to project on you and we're all like that. Much of the time, I just absolutely cannot wait for my time. This is my personal Bible time. There are times where maybe I'm discouraged. Times where I feel defeated. Times where I'm, I'm not where I should be in my relationship with the Lord. And in those times, it is a chore. It, it becomes a box I check. I'm doing it just to get it out of the way. So we have those times. So this isn't talking about I, I live my life in such a way that I always delight in God's Word and there's never a moment when it's a chore. There's never a time when I would rather be doing something else. I think what this would be talking about would be the totality. As you look at your life as a whole, is there delight in God's Word on the regular and in the occasional it's a chore? Or is God's Word a chore on the regular. And then maybe every so often there's it's a source of joy. Now, the Bible tells us what it should be to us. Therefore, I love thy commandments above gold, yea, above fine gold. I rejoice at thy word as one that findeth great spoil. Now, I won't even get into the fact cherishing God's word over gold. Just look at the picture of what it says. The the level of delight the psalmist has in God's Word. Does this describe your normative attitude toward God's Word? 
it should. Every child of God should deeply love the Word of God. The love should be more than a love for it as a, a set pretty or a decoration. Right? I, I've talked about this before. Of people who have a Bible and they'll talk about it. Yes, I've got it. I'll never read it, but look, there it is. It says Holy Bible, the King James Version. Right? And they, it, it is a decoration that's prominently placed in their house. They want people to see it. It's important that it's there, but they don't ever read it. They don't ever get into it. That's, that's not what he's talking about. He didn't even have a copy of God's Word he could hold in his hand. The treasure isn't, man, this is such a, I love, and I do love this particular Bible. I like the feel of it. I like everything about the way it handles in my hands. I always have. But that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about, I love this. I love getting into it. I love to study it. I I love, in fact, the psalmist in Psalm 119, times we'll talk about, I, I run to obey your commandments. Right? So there's an eagerness to do what God has said. So do we have a, a love for God's Word which motivates us to get into the Word, to dig into it, to read it, to study it, to, to memorize it, to think on it? Because thinking on it is a part of it, not just reading it. Look at what he goes on to say. And in thy law doth he meditate day and night. Now the word meditate is an interesting word. One of my commentaries says, meditate is a figurative word and it pictures a cow chewing her cud. I'm not much of a rancher, uh, but I did Google today and, and learn about a cow chewing her cud. And it's gross. right? If you're well versed in this, you know what happens. But the cow chews the grass and gets it all wet and slobbery and chewed up, and then they swallow it. And then later, they regurgitate it and they chew it some more. And then they swallow it. And then later they regurgitate it again. And I don't know how many times they can do it. I, I didn't read that far. But that's what they do. They, they chew, they swallow, they regurgitate, they chew some more, swallow, regurgitate some more. That's the picture of meditate. <laughs> that's kind of a, an odd image. But here, think of it like this. None of us just sit and think about the Bible all day, every day, forever. You just can't. Nobody does. Nobody lives like that. There's just stuff to do, right? Life happens. But here's what meditating is. I read my Bible and I think of a verse. Blessed the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful life. I think on that. And my phone rings. So I have to answer my phone. And I answer the talk and I answer whatever there. And then I have to run some errands. But while I'm driving, I can bring back up that idea. Blessed is the man that... Walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the swarm. And then we get to where we're going, we have to get out and go do our stuff, and we get back in the car, and we, we bring it back up again, and we think on it some more. And we just kind of go through life like that. Go through all of our day at various times. We, we take what we've studied or a verse that's on our mind, and we, we bring it up and we think about it. And then life happens and we have to swallow it down. But then life comes, when life kind of passes at that point, we bring it back up. This is the, the picture. That we don't just read our Bible in the morning or in the evening and we never think about it again. Instead, we think about it, but then we go on with life and we swallow it and then we bring it back up. And it's just a constant, at various points throughout my day, and I, day and night. Right? So this is something that happens all throughout my day, all throughout my night. 
I'm just up and down occasionally here. Now the reason our attitude towards God's word is so important is because it reveals a great deal about our spiritual condition. Look at what Peter says. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if so be you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Now the word desire is a very strong word. It means to crave, to yearn, to long. It's an intense desire. And it's both active and objective. It's active in that it leads us to do something. right? So those who desire do something to satisfy that desire. But in this case, the desire is objective. It's not just for anything. It's for something specific. It's for God's Word. It's not just a desire to read. And it's not just a desire to be alone. And it's not just a desire for, for quiet and peace around me. It is a, a desire to get somewhere and get God's Word and study it. To read it. To meditate upon it. It is a desire that's not just like, man, I wish I had time to read God's Word. I wish I had spent more time in it yesterday. I I wish I would take more time in it today. But it's a desire that says I'm going to. And it actively gets us up and takes us to the Bible where we satisfy that desire with the pure milk of God's Word. And the reason we have this desire, he says, if so be, you have tasted the Lord is gracious. Now the idea... Tasting the Lord is gracious is we've been saved. So essentially what he's saying is desire the sincere milk of the word if you've been saved. So that desire, the desire for God's word, that intense, active and specific desire should be there for those who are born again. Because think about it. Think about it in just any number of ways. We're given a new nature. Now, the old nature doesn't want anything to do with God's Word, but the new nature, the new heart, as Ezekiel says, certainly would. The Spirit of the living God comes to live within us. The Spirit who inspired and carried along the altar. Surely, we would say the Spirit would lead us to the truth, right? Would lead us to the Word. So all of these things should be there. Our our lives should have a desire for God's Word. An intense, strong longing for God's Word. And where this longing and desire isn't present, we should recognize it is a serious spiritual problem. Those who have tasted the Lord is gracious desire the sincere milk of the Word. So what is your attitude toward God's Word? What does this attitude lead you to do? Our attitude towards God's Word, it will be a good indicator of what path we're on and what our eventual eternal destination will be. And then thirdly, kind of fruit of my bearing. Question one, who or what is influencing me? Question two, what is my attitude towards God's Word? Question three, what kind of fruit am I bearing? Now Scripture very often uses the idea of fruit bearing as a as a descriptor of what's going on in our lives, in our spiritual life. Fruit is the actions that flow out of our lives. And they say something about what path we're on and what our eventual destination will be. Verse 3 says, 
that the righteous walking on God's path shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. It speaks of good fruit. It speaks of continual fruit, consistent fruit, like like a tree planted by rivers of water always bears fruit. Those who are righteous, who are walking in the path of God, always are bearing fruit in their lives. Good fruit. Fruit that lasts. Now, Scripture repeatedly tells us the actions of our lives, the fruit, reveal a great deal about the path we're on and what our eventual eternal destination will be. This was part of my daily Bible reading last week. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, bringeth forth fruit which is good. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, bringeth forth that which is evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. So those are the specific wording. What comes out of our lives, what comes out of our mouths, reveals about our heart. And what it reveals about our heart reveals what path we're on and what our eventual eternal destination will be. Our actions, the the normal, consistent actions in our life reveal our heart. Evil actions in our lives come from somewhere. They come from our heart. Now, evil actions would be anything the Bible calls a sin. Sinful actions are evil actions, and they come from a sinful or an evil heart. So when we consistently live sinful lives, there is a reason for that. And the reason is we have an evil heart, and we are not on the path of the righteous, and heaven is not our eventual eternal destination. But it's not just our lives, even our words reveal our heart. Our words reveal our path because they reveal the condition of our heart. Evil words would be things like profanity, sexualized language, demeaning and degrading someone with our words. And probably much more if you look at all the Bible says about our words. And these evil words come from somewhere. It's not just another way to talk. They come from somewhere. And where they come from is an evil heart. And those evil words reveal an evil heart of a person who is not righteous, who is not walking on the path of God, and whose eventual eternal destination is not heaven. So we have to ask ourselves, what actions do we take in a normal day? What kind of words do we use in a normal day? day? The answer to these questions is a good indicator of what path we're on and what our eternal destination will be. So in in light of these three questions, the big question we all have to ask is, what does the direction of my life reveal about the path I'm on and where my eventual eternal destination will be? This is a huge and important question, one we should not Take lightly. If the direction of our life reveals we are on God's path, and our eventual destination is heaven, we should keep going and rejoice. God has saved us and changed us. 
But if the direction of our lives reveal we are not on God's path, and we are headed to a path that leads to judgment, we have to deal with it and take it seriously. And this is the reason I called this the call to the path of God or the call to God's path. Because this was given so we could see, we could examine our lives. God wants us all on His path. He wants us to be righteous. He wants us to stand in judgment. He wants us to be with Him. That's why Jesus came. The whole point of Jesus' coming and life and death and resurrection was to testify, I want you with me. I want you to walk with me in life and be with me after. I want you. I have paid the penalty for your sins. I am calling you. I know you can't do it, but Jesus did it in your stead. Come to me. So he gives us passages like this so we can examine our lives. Even in the New Testament, we're given passages we're told to examine our lives. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, to examine yourself. See if you're in the faith. See if Jesus is really among you. And that passage to me is so important because he doesn't say, did you pray a prayer? He doesn't say, were you baptized? He doesn't say, were you a member of a church? He says, examine your life. Do you see evidence of Jesus in your life? What would be evidence of Jesus in our life? Well, it would be being influenced by the righteous and the godly. It would be a a love and a desire for God's word. It would be good fruit for the glory of God, consistently born. So do we see evidence of Jesus in our lives? And if not, we have to take that seriously. We also have to understand with this, we can kind of take detours at times. I mean, there are times where we start off well on the path of God. And things happen. And we veer to the right. Or we veer to the left. Passages like this are God's way of saying, come back over here. This is the good way. Walk there. So maybe we're on the path of God, but we've gotten off track. God's saying, come back. Come back over here. But whatever, God's saying something to us. What path are we on? What path are those we love on? I'll close with this. I found a, a series of studies they do in in Africa when they try to start new churches in, in villages. They study the Bible and then they they finish reading it. They have somebody volunteer to tell the story. So not read it, but they've understood it enough to tell the story of the passage. And they say, "What, what is God saying to you? Or what is God saying? Who does this tell us about who God is in this passage? And then they say, if this was the Word of God, how should you respond? And then they say, now who do you need to tell? So if this, what we've looked at in Psalm 1 is the Word of God, how do you need to respond? How do I need to respond? And if it is the Word of God, who do we need to tell? Let's pray.
Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome, worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Help us, Father, to take what we've seen in this passage seriously to examine our lives. To understand we can stray, we can deceive ourselves. And Lord, to use it also to encourage ourselves. We are on the right path. We are heading in your way. Father, where we are walking in your path, strengthen us in that. Continually give us wise counselors. Continually stir up our desire for your word. Continually let your spirit produce good fruit in our lives because of our connection to Jesus. But Lord, where we've strayed, draw us back. Where we've never been on it, bring us to it in the first place. And help us to see those we love. Lord, through more than eyes of love, but through eyes of what you've revealed here. If this is your word, what do we need to do? And if this is your word, who should we tell? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.